recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 29, 2014. This is the 13th weekend, I noticed, posting last night's program of 2014. The year is a quarter gone already. Tonight, once again, we will discuss, be discussing Martin Luther and his treatise on the Jews and their lives. This is part seven of this series. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Once again, I have Sword Brethren here to assist me in this presentation and end our and any subsequent discussion we may have. Hello, Brian. How are you tonight? How are you doing? I noticed that you would have had to hang up and then dial back in and said something about the power going out. Yes, it's been flickering and glitching, and it may very well go out in the middle of the program, in which case you've lost me. Okay. Well, well maybe when your UPS gets down to five minutes, you could give us a warning if it doesn't come back on. Oh, no, my, the phone is not on the UPS. That's why the computer is on the UPS. If the, if the power goes out again, then that's basically it. I can tell you about it through the computer, but I have no phone on a UPS. Okay, I understand. We've got to get you a Skype account or something. Okay, it, it's almost painful to repeat this each week as we proceed through Martin Luther's essay on the Jews and their lives. But I think it is necessary to summarize and keep in mind what we have seen from Luther so far, which is good and acceptable, and, and, and what, which is... Um, even edifying, and, and what we have seen, which is not, where we can learn from his mistakes. First, Luther, because he accepts the persons of the Jews, he has also accepted their lies, believing that they actually are the descendants of ancient Israel. So he, he knew about the Jews and their lies, but he took for granted the, the, their very premise, and their very premise is not true. That acceptance forced him into a universalist position concerning Scripture. And therefore, when he argues against the special position which true Israel can claim for itself, imagining the Jews to be true Israel, he is found to be arguing against the scripture. Second, in his arguments, Luther consistently fabricated his own sophistic arguments against the Jews rather than standing on scripture and using scripture to refute the Jews. We would assert that there are no better arguments against the Jews than those of Yahshua Christ, our Redeemer, who is the ultimate proof that Jews are devils, never to be trusted any more than the serpents that they are. However, to his credit, in spite of the fact that he thought the Jews were God's chosen people, Luther understood that collectively the Jews were indeed evil and incorrigible beasts who could never be reformed, and that therefore they had no place in the kingdom of God. 
With this, we shall continue where we left off last week, midway through part three of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies. Brian, you may have some remarks. Well, as we've already said, Luther didn't see the entire picture, but he was certainly, we would say he was centuries ahead of the people today who call themselves, you know, in his name, Lutherans, the people who, in his name, embrace the Jews. And if you handed them a copy of On the Jews and Their Lies and told them that it was by Martin Luther, they'd call you a liar. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, and, and I don't think he's listening tonight, I'm not sure, but Mike Delaney actually did that. He stood outside of a church, I think it was in the Midwest, I think it was Wisconsin, I'm not positive, but he stood outside of a Lutheran church with copies of On the Jews and Their Lies, and, and those people hated him for it. it. It'd be nice to get him on here one day to talk about that, but they did, and, and, and they will. So you're absolutely right. If the Lutheran church had only um, followed Martin Luther on how he felt about the Jews, even with all of his faults, the Lutheran church would be a lot better off today. Right, well... Most what was it Paul said? Am I to become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Right. And by the end of this treatise, we will see that Martin Luther and Adolf Hitler, they agreed on the, on, on, on the character, substance, and fate of the Jews. There was no doubt. And, and in fact, Martin Luther, if he'd have been Hitler's advisor on the Jews, there may have been a holocaust. Maybe. Right, well, wasn't it Luther who said that it is not a sin when we kill them, rather the sin occurs every day we allow them to continue living? Right, we'll see by the end of this treatise that he had no no, no love at all for these people and, and, and would have um, seen Christendom a much happier place without him. There's no doubt. Do you want to pick up with Luther, or should I? Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house, and do not speak to welcome him. For he, wow, this is very cut off. the document you sent me. Is it? Because it looks like you're reading a part that doesn't even belong there. Being honest. Such piety is, this is beginning where we left off last week, such piety is, as already has been said, so concealed among them that they themselves also can know nothing of it. He's talking about the Jews' false, false, um, that basically the false piety that they put up as a pretense. How then shall God know of it? For they are all full of malice, greed, envy, hatred toward one another, pride, usury, conceit, and curses against the Gentiles. Therefore, a Jew would have to have very sharp eyes to recognize a pious Jew. All of their piety and pretense is not good because they're not really pious at all. 
to say nothing of the fact that they all should be God's people as they claim, for they surely hide their piety effectively under their manifest vices. And yet they all, without exception, claim to be Abraham's blood, the people of the circumcision and of Moses, that is, God's nation, compared with whom the Gentiles must surely be sheer stench. Although they know that God cannot tolerate this, nor did he tolerate it among the angels. Yet he should and must listen to their lies and blasphemies to the effect that they are his people by virtue of the law he gave them and because he conversed with their forefathers at Mount Sinai. That there's no doubt Luther believed the Jews were Israel and that caused him to have a very convoluted view of the entire scripture. In truth, no Jew is pious. No Jew can be pious. There is not one Jew that could possibly be pious because of one reason. The Jews rejected Christ. Christ is the stumbling stone to piety laid in Zion by God himself, according to the prophecy. If they had accepted Christ if they were his sheep indeed, they would long ago have forgotten their identity as Israel. They would have forgotten their identity as Jews. Yahweh said he would leave that name to, to his enemies and call his servants by another name in Isaiah. If they'd have accepted Christ, they would have become one with Christendom like all of the true Israelite Judeans did in the first century, where Paul said there's not one Judean nor Greek, you are all one in Christ, that was actually fulfilled with the real Israelites who converted to Christianity and became one with the greater Roman, Greco-Roman world, in Christ. However, it was a matter of the gospel and prophecy that the enemies of God would reject Christ and that they would condemn themselves in that rejection. Every Jew since then only represents the walking damned as his blood is on them and their children. And from what I understand, I have no audio on TalkShoe. We're going to have to put TalkShoe away. I'm not going to worry about it. All right, so do we proceed right now? Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Then how come there's no audio on TalkShoe? I'm not listening on TalkShoe, though. You're not listening on TalkShoe. We're both dialed into TalkShoe. R.P. Wake hears me. R.P. Wake hears me. Demon Dog hears me. I'm going by what David Burton said in the Christogonia chat room. I apologize. I should have probably got a second opinion. That that's that This talk to you thing is getting to be too much. Would you like to continue? Did you find your place in that document? Is that Did the document become scrambled or something when I yeah. sent it to you? looks like you were working on multiple documents, and something that was for another document wound up pasted on top of several paragraphs in this document. That's absolutely strange. Can you delete that section? 
I'll lose an entire block. I mean, literally, there are words that are on top of other words, and you kind of have to look behind to see what the actual, you know, what the writing is. It's weird because I'm working with the same document that I sent you. Back to Martin Luther. Why should one make many words about this? If the boast that God spoke with them and that they possess his word or commandment were sufficient so that God would, on the basis, regard them as his people, then the devils in hell would be much worthier of being God's people than the Jews. Yes, than any people. For the devils have God's word and know far better than the Jews that there is a God who created them whom they are obliged to love with all their heart, to honor, fear, and serve, whose name they dare not misuse, whose word they must hear on the Sabbath and at all times. They know that they are forbidden to murder or to inflict harm on any creature. But what good does it to them to know and to possess God's commandments? Let them boast that this makes them God's own special dear angels in comparison with whom other angels are nothing. How much better off they would be if they did not have God's commandment or if they were ignorant of it. For if they did not have it, they would not be condemned. The very reason for their condemnation is that they possess his commandment and yet do not keep it but violate it constantly. And this is almost difficult for me to read because I want to argue with it as I go along. Luther's argument is nonsense. Devils know that there is one God and they tremble. That's as far as the scripture goes. In reality, the Jews are indeed devils. Luther has them confused to the people of God, but God is not confused. There, there, there were the original angels who fell who were who are kept in chains of darkness until the great day of judgment, according to Jude, according to Peter, according to other places in Scripture. But not all devils are angels that fell. Judas Iscariot, he wasn't a fallen angel per se, directly. He was born of a woman in, in Palestine. He was a devil. So there are walking, talking devils because they are violations of God's creation. Because they are bastards, that doesn't mean that God created them. We can't really blame God for our sin. There's a whole level of scriptural understanding which evidently Luther was lacking. Do you have any comments? Well, just like you said, Iscariot was specifically labeled a devil by Christ. And this is another point, too. How could someone be such a creep, such a worthless, vile, wretched serpent that... He was in the physical presence of God-made man for several years. He followed him during his ministry. He ate with him. He, he probably slept alongside him when they were traveling. He heard him preach and teach and minister and heal. He, he witnessed all the miracles. And then for a, a bag of silver, he sold him out. Well, well, right. But Christ said, I know who I have chosen, and one of you is a devil. And, and the Gospel of John basically proves out that Judas Iscariot was chosen because he was a, a devil, because Christ knew that the devil would betray him, and, and that's, the, that, that's the genetic inevitable inevitability. It, it's right. be, because he's a bastard. It's inevitable that he would be a betrayer. 
Right, so the people, the evangelical Christians that want to minister to the Jews and convert them, that's ridiculous. Jesus never, he, he did not expend one moment on this earth trying to convert one single Jew. Well, well absolutely. He, he, he upbraided them. He reproached them. He, he didn't, um, the Pharisees that he spoke to, that they, they weren't necessarily Jews, per se, as we know Jews. They were Judeans. He, he ministered to them. He, he um, dined and, and, and preached to them. But his opposition in, in the temple, he, he wasn't trying to convert those people. He told those people exactly who they were, that they were devils, they were bastards, they, they were no good. Everything that he said to them was for the edification of the children of Israel and for, for, for us down through the ages. It right. wasn't their edification. As you pointed out in Revelation, when it talks about devils and demons inhabiting certain places, that's already been fulfilled. The Arabs have overrun the entire Near East. Well, well absolutely. I, I mean, those Arabs that have overrun the entire Near East, they are a curse to the nations that used to inhabit those places in the Near East. Those Arabs are a curse. I'll give one example, one scriptural example. When Yahweh gives an oracle against the Philistines in the book of Zechariah, in the prophecy of Zechariah, I think it might be Zechariah chapter 9, but I'm probably wrong. The, um, it's definitely in Zechariah. Yahweh says that, is part of the punishment of the Philistines that a bastard shall live in Ashdod. So you go to Palestine today and see who it is that fulfilled the prophecy of Yahweh that said a bastard shall live in Ashdod. Because those people that live there today, they're not Philistines. They're bastards. They are the result of that curse in Zechariah that a bastard should live in Ashdod. These people in Palestine, Christians should understand, they are bastards. And the scripture says that a bastard shall never enter the congregation of the Lord. Never. So how do we look at these people in Palestine? Do we look at them as people, or do we look at them as the result of Yahweh's curse? They themselves are a curse. Those Arab bastards are exactly that. They're a curse. They're not people. They're a curse. They're, they're the result in every one of those places, in Babylonia, in, in Assyria, in Syria, in Jordan, in, in, in the former lands of Moab and Ammon. You go back in Scripture and see what the prophets say about all those lands and these bastards that inhabit there today are the result of those curses which Yahweh God had, had placed upon all those former people who lived in those places. They're bastards. And we should understand that those bastards are the result of the dissatisfaction and the curse of God. How could we accept those people? That's incredible that Christians have a total cognitive dissonance when it comes to the actual words of God in the Scripture and their fulfillment, that we can't see it. We're blind.
Okay, I didn't mean to get off on that much of a tangent, but it had to be said. Back to Martin Luther. In the same manner, murderers and whores, thieves and rogues, and all evil men might boast that they are God's holy, peculiar people, for they too have his word and know that they must fear and obey him, love and serve him, honor his name, refrain from murder, adultery, theft, and every other evil deed. If they, had not, if they did not have God's holy and true word, they could not sin. But since they do sin and are condemned, it is certain that they do have the holy true word of God against which they sin. Let them boast, like the Jews, that God has sanctified them through his law and chosen them above all other men as a peculiar people. And this is all nonsense. Martin's entire, Martin Luther's entire argument here is nonsense. He's trying to make the assertion that if you have a Bible, that you're the people of God. And, and that's nonsense because God defines his people in Scripture. And, and man can't make substitutions for that. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that man can't make substitutions for that. Are you still with me? Yes. Do you have any comments? Well, about the um, Arabs overrunning all those lands and being a curse... It's often occurred to me, and I've pointed out to a number of people, that our race right now, I believe that we've never had fewer lands than around this point in time. That If you think about what lands we inhabited three, 4,000 years ago and where we are today, we've lost a colossal amount of territory, and yet we're consistently told that we are the colonizers and the imperialists. Although the Arabs pushed us, you know, the um, Byzantines, the Greeks, the Romans, they got pushed out of the Near East. And right. took over India and, you know, um, what is now Pakistan and Afghanistan and, you know, the, the, the um, Siberian steppe. And, and all, of, all, all of Eurasia was at one time belonging to the, to the white Scythians, the, the, the um, Masagete and the Sake, the, the um, Sogdiana, Bactriana, Modern-day Kazakhstan bastards live there today. That used to be white territory. The um, North Africa, everything above the Sahara, it was all white territory, white North Africa, every bit of it. Those people aren't white today. There's a couple of, of, um, of people left that, that, that actually really do apparently are white and, and descended to the Moors, but... For the most part, those people aren't white today. Not at all. And they were all formerly white lands that Arabs encroached on. They took Spain and Portugal, right? I, I mean, they tried to get into France. They tried to come through the Balkans and get into, and into um, ancient Germany. There's, there's no doubt that they are the ones who have pushed whites out of their lands or overrun them. And, and bastardize them. That's a matter of prophecy. It's spelled out in the book of Daniel. It's spelled out in the Revelation, especially in Revelation chapter 9. But, but it still happened. And, and whites shouldn't feel guilty when they push back. Whites have been programmed by the Jews to feel guilty when they push back, and whites keep getting pushed. And, and now all of Christendom is overrun.
God's people are Abraham's seed through Israel. That, that's spelled out in Scripture from one end of the Bible to the other, right through the letters of Paul, the Revelation. Everything else is nonsense. Many Israelites are sinners, and, and Luther is making that point, but he imagines those Israelites to be the Jews. Because many Israelites are sinners, that does not make many wrongdoers or sinners Israelites. And that's the argument that Luther's trying to come up here with. The, the fabrication of sophistic arguments in order to answer the Jews is going to be a failure every single time. In his arguments, Luther himself displays many traits of the Jews. As far as his polemic is concerned, he makes straw man arguments. He, he, he builds arguments on false premises. Perhaps this is because Luther, and this is very evident in the, in the first paragraphs of this treatise on the Jews and their lives, and we discussed it in the first presentation of this, of this series at length, Luther was studied in the writings of Lyra and Bergensis, and Luther called those men two excellent men in the opening paragraphs of this paper. Nicholas of Lyra was born a Jew in 1279 AD and eventually became a Catholic and a Franciscan teacher. Bergensis is Paul of Burgos. He was born Solomon Ha Levi, and he was a Talmudic scholar and a rabbi. Luther has admitted to studying the Bible commentaries written by Lyra and later added to by Bergensis. Lyra, who is considered today to be a prominent early scholar of what we call biblical exegesis, was actually a corrupter of Christianity through his insistences upon a literal interpretation of all scripture. And we see Luther follows that mold by insisting on literally interpreting all Scripture. And a disconnect of Scripture with its historical context. Luther, studying the works of these Jews, accepted their arguments. And therefore, Luther is actually giving legitimacy to the Jews. In truth, no Jew can be a Christian but Luther learned much of his so-called Christianity from these two converso Jews. And I believe that is his, his biggest problem, his biggest obstacle to understanding, was that he did study these Jews because they were supposedly converted to Christianity. He studied their works, he accepted it, and he repeated it. So basically the foundation is weak then. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Luther was a great man in a lot of ways, and he was a brave man, but he had a weak Christian foundation, and that led him into many, even though he hated the Jews and knew they were liars and knew they were evil, his acceptance that they were Israel led him into a lot of other problems with Scripture. That's the basis for universalism. You accept the Jewish lie that they are Israel, and if you pretend to be a Christian, you're going to be universalist, and you're going to be found just like Martin Luther, arguing against Christianity 
in order to defend your Christianity. Luther is arguing against the Bible in many places. He's denying the promises of God. He's denying the efficacy of God and the ability to save his people. Are you caught up to me in the text? Yes. Would you like to read the next part? It is the same kind of boasting when the Jews in their synagogues, praising and thanking God for sanctifying them through his law and setting them apart as a peculiar people, although they know full well that they are not at all observing this law, that they are full of conceit, envy, usury, greed, and all sorts of malice. The worst offenders are those who pretend to be very devout and holy in their prayers. They are so blind that they not only practice usury, not to mention the other vices, but they teach that it is a right which God conferred on them through Moses. Thereby, as in all the other matters, they slander God most infamously. However, we lack the time to dwell on that now. And when he says, not to mention the other vices, I assume he's talking about prostitution, pandering, and procuring, and things that are you know rather delicate to discuss back in that time. Well, well, that's what I would believe, because the, the Jews were, were whoremongers all through the Middle Ages. Whoremongers, sorcerers, and, and panderers, and, and whatever vice you wanted supplied, they would make sure that they were the suppliers, because they wanted you in their debt. Luther is much more acute when he observes the Jews of his own time and recognizes their character. He would have done well to apply his observations to his biblical studies. Luther had a very strong love for God's law. It's very clear. And, and his love for God's law makes manifest that it is written on the hearts of true Israel. And the true Israel, they aren't the Jews. Luther was blind to that. It wasn't time for an awakening, so no matter how intelligent he may have been, he was blinded. His blindness, in great part, was because he accepted the writings of Lyra and Bergensis and other Jews who he thought should be Christians. That's the first step down a slippery slope. Jews that have for, for 40 generations denied that Yahshua was the Christ, we can't accept them. It's, it's way too late for them. Now, do you that, know, that um, they are tares, there is no doubt. Lyra and Bergensis, were they just Jews who decided, like Brother Nathaniel, oh, I'm going to call myself a Christian, this is a great deal? Or did some you know, Christian bishop actually minister to them and convert them? Well, well, I'm not sure how they were converted, but they were both converted. They, were, they lived about 100 years before, apart, right? Lyra lived in, in, I believe, the 12th or 13th, 13th century, and Bergensis 100 years later. Lyra wrote an extensive commentary on Scripture. He was a converted Jew. Bergensis was a Talmudic rabbi, and he was supposedly a converted Jew, converted to... Christianity, and he made extensive additions to Lyra's commentary. He was a Talmudic rabbi. It's the bad tree cannot produce good fruit. 
Yeah, you know, that fig tree in Jerusalem, Yahshua Christ stood outside the gate to Jerusalem, Jerusalem and cursed that fig tree and said there would be no more fruit from it forever. And Christians should have understood right there that those Judeans who did not convert to Christianity at that time they would never convert to Christianity because they weren't supposed to. We should have under, understood and accepted the words of Christ that there would be no more fruit from the Jews forever, and we should have never tried to convert them again. And, and I really can't name any names in this, but I've done enough reading to understand it. There were early Roman Catholic popes, if I have to use the title, who were in favor of converting the Jews at diverse times, but there were other early Roman Catholic popes who were against it and understood that the Jews should never be converted. So some early Christians ostensibly did understand the words of Christ, and others, for whatever reason, didn't and wanted to circumvent them and thought the Jews should be converted to Christianity. So we might say that it was a divisive issue even back then. Yes, it was. It was a divisive issue all through the medieval period. But the, the common sense, the real Christian should understand that if, if God incarnate could not convert Jews to Christianity, that no man should even try. That's my opinion. They should be rejected. They should have been rejected all through time. Our acceptance of them has led to the destruction of Christian society, which we see today. Did God know that? Of course he did. He wrote the Revelation 2,000 years worth of history in advance, hopefully not much longer, but possibly even longer than 2,000 years. It's history written in advance, there's no doubt. And most of it, the greater portion of it, has indeed been fulfilled. So of course he knew what, what we were going to do, what mistakes we were going to make. His messages to the seven churches spell out those mistakes that we were going to make. And we made them. That's why those messages are there. All right. Continue with um, Luther then? Sure. But when they declare that even if they are not holy because of the Ten Commandments, since all Gentiles and devils are also duty-bound to keep these, or else are polluted and condemned on account of them, they still have the other laws of Moses besides the Ten Commandments, which were given exclusively to them and not also to the Gentiles, and by which they are sanctified and singled out from all other nations. O Lord God, what a lame, loose, and vain excuse and pretext this is. If the Ten Commandments are not obeyed, what does the keeping of the other laws amount to other than mere jugglery and mummery? Indeed, Veritable mockery which treats God as a fool. It is just as if an evil, devilish fellow among us were to parade about in the garb of a pope, cardinal, bishop, or pastor, 
and observe all the precepts and the ways of these persons, but underneath this spiritual dress would be a genuine devil, a wolf, an enemy of the church, a blasphemer who trampled both the gospel and the Ten Commandments underfoot and cursed and damned them. What a fine saint he would be in God's sight. That sounds like John Spong. You know, someone who calls themselves a bishop, but they're a sodomite. Absolutely. The, the, um, well, well f- first, all Gentiles and devils are duty-bound to keep the Ten Commandments. I don't think so. By Gentiles, if you mean the people of the nations of true Israel, the Christian nations, yes, Christians are duty-bound to keep the Ten Commandments. Are devils duty-bound to keep the Ten Commandments? Where does it say that in Scripture? We should expect devils to keep none of the commandments of Christ. So Luther is, like, his universalism goes even beyond what we may have ever imagined. It's too bad he didn't understand that Lyra and Bergensa, Bergensis were devils. Christians are bound to keep the Ten Commandments, but devils can't be Christians. This, um, the, 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 the devilish fellows among us were to parade about in the, in the garb of a pope, cardinal, bishop, or pastor and observe all... Luther's just positing a, um, a rhetorical argument, but... You know, a lot of those people parading around by this time, and and a thousand years before this time, in 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 the garb of popes, cardinals, and bishops, a lot of them were devils too. And Christians didn't realize it because they accepted the persons of Jews. to Luther? Yes, please. Or let us suppose that somewhere a pretty girl came along, adorned with a wreath, and observed all the manners and duties, the deportments and discipline of a chaste virgin, but underneath was a vile, shameful whore violating the Ten Commandments. What good would her fine obedience in observing outwardly all the duties and customs of a virgin's station do her? It would help her this much that one would be seven times more hostile to her than to an impudent public whore. Thus, God constantly chided the children of Israel through the prophets, calling them a vile whore because under the guise and decor of external laws and sanctity, they practiced all sorts of idolatry and villainy, as especially Hosea laments in chapter 2. You know, when Luther's arguments seem sound or not, he is found arguing against Scripture. While the sins of Israel were indeed grievous, Yahweh God nevertheless promised that he would once again betroth himself to those same Israelite people in the same chapter of Hosea that Luther is referencing. And I'm going to read from verse 17. For I will take away the names of Baalim out of her mouth, meaning out of Israel's mouth. Now, if he does that, and he remarries himself to Israel, and he took the names of Baalim out of her mouth, how can we imagine that he's talking about some other Israel? There is no other Israel. 
and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. And I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee, meaning Israel, unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know Yahweh, and it will come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. All of this is talking about Israel. It's not talking about anybody else. It's talking about ancient Israel. Israel, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, meaning the Israelites that were put out of the land in the Assyrian deportations. And I will say unto them who were not my people, they were not his people because he put them out of the land. Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. This it is a, a demonstration of what Yahweh would do with his people Israel, that he would alienate them and then he would reconcile them. And, and he's not substituting for them. This also discredits the equation which Luther made earlier, where he likened the husband, and, and we did discuss this last week, where Luther had likened the husband-wife relationship of Yahweh to Israel as Baal worship, and he was very wrong for doing that. Since here, it is clearly distinguished from Baal worship. So, so Luther, he had a heavy Jewish influence, and he really did not have a good understanding of Scripture. He understood some things, and he was very convicted about them. He loved the law of God. He understood that redemption in Christ, well, that, that that price was paid by Christ once for all. He fought against the papists on those points, and, and he, he put up a very brave fight. But he had a severe lack of understanding of many scriptures. My, my bet is that a lot of that is due to his heavy Jewish influences. So, if these Jews, um, what, Lyra and Bergensis, if they were able to influence Luther to such an extent, how, um, what was the magnitude of influence they had with laymen? Well, well, I mean, I can't tell that, but, but Luther being a Catholic and, and a Catholic priest, which is how he started out his career and how he obtained his education, who knows how many Catholic priests that these Jews who, who wrote these books, and, and yet you know who the book publishers are even back then, and, and the merchants, these Jews wrote these books, how many Catholic priests, other than Luther, were affected by their thinking if Luther was clearly affected by their thinking? And Luther admitted it and called them two excellent men. 
so so the Catholic Church and and Christian Europe, what was evidently infected what with Jewish interpretations of Scripture and and Jewish doctrinal interpolations before the time of Luther by at least two hundred years. How far and wide that actually was. I would bet it was far and wide, but it would be a study in itself. I don't know if it's a, it's, it's a study that we could um, that we could correctly attain. I don't know if the, the research material that the, the original material we would need to do that study, if it would even be available to us. What well, we would have to trace through the the letters and writings of how many Christian bishops to see how many of them were affected by these Jewish Bible commentators, like Luther was. Because Luther was clearly affected by them. He admits it. All right. Back to Luther. Please. To be sure, it is commendable when a pious virgin or woman is decently and cleanly dressed and adorned and outwardly conducts herself with modesty, but if she is a whore, her garments, adornments, wreath, and jewels would better befit a sow that wallows in the mire. As Solomon said in Proverbs 11.22, like a golden ring and a swine's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. That is to say, she is a whore. Therefore, this boast about the external laws of Moses, apart from the obedience to the Ten Commandments, should be silenced. Indeed, this boast makes the Jews seven times more unworthy to be God's people than the Gentiles are. For the external laws were not given to make a nation the people of God, but to adorn and enhance God's people externally. Just as the Ten Commandments were not given that any might boast of them and haughtily despise all the world because of them, as if they were holy and God's people because of them, rather they were given to be observed and that obedience to God might be shown in them, as Moses and all the prophets most earnestly teach. Not he who has them shall glory, as we saw in them, as we saw in the instance of the devils and of evil men, but he who keeps them. He who has them and fails to keep them must be ashamed and terrified, because he will surely be condemned by them. Well, well, you know, Luther's analogies concerning the law are pretty interesting, and they're good. That the law was given to Israel so, so that it, Israel, in, in a lot of respects, would have the appearance of being the people of God, which goes along with the substance of give, being the people of God. But, and, and that they would act it. The, the city set on it, you know, the shining light can't be placed under a couch, right? That Israel would act it. That they would, it would be manifest that they were a special people and a holy people if they kept those laws. But in reality, none of these things ever apply to the Jews because the Jews are not Israel. So, so while a lot of Luther's arguments in support of the law and the, and the purpose of the law are valid, they don't apply to the Jews. It's that simple. And they never did. And the Jews, the people we know as Jews, have never acted that, that, that part because they're not Israel. And the children of Esau, who for the most part the Jews actually are, 
never had any of those phenomena. That they never met any of those criteria. They never performed in such a manner. They've always they've always been um, merchants, traders, infiltrators, corruptors of society. They've always had those traits. Well, isn't this in keeping with what Paul taught when Paul remarks something, but not of works, lest any man boast? Well, well, our salvation is not of works. Right. But we still seek to keep the law. Christians should seek to uphold the law, but we right. must understand that we are not going to be judged by the law. Our salvation is not of works. All Israel is saved. We will all be in the kingdom of heaven. Unless a man is born from above, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. All Israel is saved. Not all Israel will gain the same reward. That's very clear in Scripture that, that you know, our reward is a separate aspect of our salvation. People, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, people whose works are tried in the fire and burned up completely, those people are still saved. Those people still enter the kingdom of heaven, but they do it with no reward. That's why the prophet Daniel said that many would awake to, to, um, to, to, to righteousness and many would awake to eternal disgrace or reproach, what, what could that be but lack of a reward? So, so all of Israel is saved, yet if we, want, if we want to store up treasure in heaven, we're going to be obedient to our God, do the things that he told us, keep my commandments, love your brother, and, and, and it's pretty basic. And, and by that means, you store up treasure in heaven. That treasure that you store up in heaven, that is your reward. Right, but both on Paul and Luther would agree that the law was not given as a point system, you know, um, obey this law and you're saved. That, that, that is not the purpose of the law. No, absolutely not. The, the purpose of the law, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Once we're in Christ, once we agree with Christ, we don't need the law. Paul said that the law is not for righteous men. The law is for the men who are sinners. The law is for the unjust. The law isn't for right. Righteous men don't need the law. If we were all righteous, we wouldn't need law. Because we would know it. We would know what's right, what's wrong, what to do, what not to do. But we wouldn't need law. We wouldn't do wrong. We wouldn't have judgment. That, that's one of the points, major points Paul makes in, in Romans, which I'll be discussing in the weeks to come. Um, I, I just began a Romans commentary last night. Right. Back to Luther. Please. But this subject is beyond the ken of the blind and hardened Jews. Speaking to them about it is much the same as preaching the gospel to a sow. They cannot know what God's commandment really is, much less do they know how to keep it. After all, they could not listen to Moses nor look into his face. He had to cover it with a veil. This veil is there to the present day, and they still do not behold Moses' face, that is, his doctrine. 
it is veiled to them. From 2 Corinthians 3.13, Exodus 34.33. Thus they could not hear God's word on Mount Sinai when he talked to them, but they retreated, saying to Moses, You speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak to us lest we die. Exodus 20.19. To know God's commandment and to know how to keep it requires a high prophetic understanding. Well, well, the problem is that the Jews have never kept God's law. They've never kept his law because they're not Israel. That Their practices have forever sought to, do, to dispute God's law. Look at the Talmud, the entire Talmud, the Mishnah, the commentaries on the law. All they are are, are convoluted arguments which afford Jews the, the, the pretense of law while they circumvent the law. That's what, the, that, that's what those Talmudic commentaries are all about. Look at prayers like the, the Kalm Nidra. The Kalm Nidra gives Jews an excuse to break all their vows and promises, which they made throughout the year. And it's everything they do it is contrary to the, to, to the will and the word and the law and the nature of God and Christ. The law is not written on their hearts, that they spend all of their time in society pandering to other people's vices, usury, everything that God reviles. That's the Jew. That this keeping of the Torah is only a pretense. It, it's a cover for them so that they could run an organized crime ring underneath that cover. Luther, he understood the Jews were evil, but he didn't even understand how evil. Now, as far as this veil that Luther talks about, which is over the eyes of the Jews and blinds the Jews, you know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that the veil was there for all the children of Israel in general, and it being left uncovered was nevertheless Take it away in Christ. The Jews cannot recover from their blindness because they rejected Christ. The veil Luther talks about, he doesn't get into everything Paul said in 2 Corinthians, even though he cited it. So Luther is just blind. He's making up his own sophistic arguments and not really knowing what the Scripture says. If he'd have read Paul, he should have understood where Paul said that the veil is taken away in Christ. You can't remove the veil on the law from the eyes of the Jews who were never given that law. They're blind, yes. There's no doubt they're blind. They're not his people in the first place. They've never been his people, so they can't understand God's law. Luther, being raised a universalist and nurtured on universalist principles, had no concept of the exclusive nature of the Scripture, and he was blind. He was blind in a different way from the Jews. The veil which Luther talks about no longer exists because it was taken away in Christ. Paul says to Corinthians 3.13, the very verse Luther, Luther remarks upon, and not as Moses, which put the veil over his face that the children of Israel could not 
steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away from the reading of the Old Testament. In other words, that veil from the reading of the Old Testament was not taken away. And then Paul says, which veil is done away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, and he's talking about the people of Judea, whether they be Israelites or Edomites, the veil is upon their heart. Why? Because they haven't accepted Christ. The veil is only taken away in Christ, and the enemies of God cannot truly accept Christ. Luther should have understood that, and then maybe he would have understood that the Jews couldn't come to Christ because they still have the veil, which is only done away with in Christ. Whoever rejects Christ, in other words, shall never see the blind leading the blind ultimately fall into the lake of fire. That's a big ditch. That's my innovation. Luther's building sophistic arguments against the Jews, he should have stood on Scripture instead. There's no righteousness without Christ. The Jews can never be righteous, period, because they rejected Christ. Well, it's more to the point we would say. He's been, all through this paper, he's been treating Judaism as if it's a legitimate path to God. He doesn't tell us where he got that idea, but he's talking about the possibility that Jews can be pious. He's talking about the possibility that Jews could be God's people. He's talking about the possibility that Jews could achieve salvation. All of these things that, that he says about the Jews and his arguments against them are not true because there's no salvation, there's no entrance to God, there's no acceptance before God without Christ. Well, rather than saying the Jews rejected Christ, we should say that Christ rejected them before he even came, and he never came for them. It's not that they rejected him because he, he didn't offer them anything, so they had nothing to accept or reject because they weren't on his, you know, he wasn't here the minister then. Well, that they really weren't the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Christ told me, you believe me not because you are not my sheep. But the litmus test which the Christ and the apostles left for us to determine who was sheep and who was not was an acceptance of Christ. And the apostles taught to accept those who accepted Christ and to reject those who rejected Christ. That was the litmus test. That's the litmus test very clear in Scripture. But we'll shortly cite um, 2 John verses 9 to 11 in, in reference to that. Luther goes on to say that Moses was well aware of that when he said in Exodus 34 that God forgives sin and that no one is guiltless before him, which is to say that no one keeps his commandments, but he who sins, God forgives. And the part 
but he who sins God forgives is added there by Luther. It's not in Scripture. As David also testifies in Psalms 32.1, blessed is he whose transgression is, forgiven, transgression is forgiven, to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. But, but that doesn't say that people who sin God's, God forgives keep his commandments. We all sin, so we all, we all are going to break one of those commandments at one time or another, and that's why we have forgiveness. David's saying that blessed is the man to whom God will not impute iniquity. So, so what, what, when we send our sins to the head, ahead to the judgment and we repent, that sin is not imputed to us. And in the same psalm, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to thee for forgiveness, which means that no saint keeps God's commandments, but if the saints fail to keep them, how will the ungodly, the unbelievers, the evil people keep them? Well, we have to say that they're not expected to. And that goes back to what you were saying, Brian, that, that Christ never offered his enemies to keep his commandments. He told them they were, they were of their father, the devil, and the works of their father they would do, right? And he said, where I go, you cannot follow. Right. He, he never offered his enemies to keep his commandments. Luther's taking it for granted that they had the opportunity to do that. Luther's taking it for granted, as he said back a few paragraphs ago, the devils were obliged to keep the Ten Commandments. I never read that in Scripture. I mean, James, I believe, says that the um, devils know that there is one God, and they fear that doesn't mean they keep his commandments. Peter tells us that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We, could, we should never take it for granted that devils, meaning that those bastards walking in shoe leather, can ever keep the commandments of God. We should never take that for granted. That's a terrible failure of understanding. Luther continues and says, but if the saints fail to keep them, how will the ungodly, the unbelievers, the evil people keep them? Well, they're not expected to. Again, we read in Psalm 143.2, O Lord, enter not into, the, into judgment with thy servant, for no man living is righteous before thee. That attests clearly enough that even the holy servants of God are not justified before him unless he sets aside his judgment and deals with them in his mercy. That is, they do not keep his commandments and stand in need of forgiveness and sin, of sins. And, you know, I would say, of course they do, but none of this applies to Jews since the Jews are not Israel. And there is no access to God at all except through Christ. Mercy is a matter of prophecy relevant to the children of Israel, found in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18. Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. And the city shall be built upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Simply because 
the children of Israel are going to receive mercy, that doesn't mean that other people can be children of God if they pretend to keep his commandments or that they will receive mercy. None of these things are for other people. Luther took it for granted that if other people kept his commandments and failed, that they would receive mercy too. It, it, it makes no sense. The argument doesn't follow. There's nowhere in Scripture where it explains that the ungodly, the unbelievers, and the evil people have an opportunity for salvation, whether they keep the commandments or not. It tells us the ungodly and the evil will be destroyed. So the idea that somebody who's not of the sheep can just, you know, they can hear about the covenant, they can say, wow, that's a great deal, I want in on that. Well, they can't graft themselves in. And that's what Luther fully infers, that they can That that's that's extreme universalism. It really is. Right. Well, if somebody sends you a letter in the mail with an offer to buy your farm at a certain price, and your neighbor happens to be over there, he looks over your shoulder and sees the offer. He says, "Wow, I want that offer. I accept." Well, the offer is not for him. Right. Absolutely. So, in that sense, when some evangelical like John Hagee says we can't blame the Jews. For, um, he said that they were never offered anything, so they never rejected anything. Technically, that's correct. The Jews weren't offered anything because they're devils, and Christ told them they were all going to hell. He didn't offer them anything. So in, in that sense, it, it's correct that the Jews didn't reject Christ because he never offered them anything. Well, well you know, the Apostle John, and, and, and I was going to quote it later in, in, in Scripture, but I'm going to go... And, and it's, it's only in two more paragraphs. The Apostle John says in his second epistle, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. Now, now the way the Christianity and New Testament translates that is different. And, 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 and it's talking about whosoever going forth abides and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. The bottom line is that if you don't believe Christ and follow Christ, you do not have God. The apostle continues and says, he that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and brings not this doctrine, in other words, if anybody approaches you who is not a Christian, receive him not into your house. Neither bid him Godspeed. That's an archaic term that means not even to greet him. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. So you share. Well, when you accept the persons of the Jews and, and other people who, who, who shouldn't be Christians and you accept the persons of those who deny Christ, you are a partner. You have made yourself a partner in their evil deeds because you basically, accepting the persons of the Jews, 
you facilitate all the evil that that Jew bastard is going to perpetrate in your community. You facilitated that by accepting the person of them. And we wonder why we have so many problems in Christendom. There's other places in the apostles and in the words of Christ where we're told to reject those people that rejected Christ. We should reject them wholeheartedly. We should have never accepted them. Under any pretense of piety. Do you have any comments? Well, simply that we should never accept them because Christ never accepted them, if for no other reason. You know, on the uh, mainstream Christian on the street, if he's actually read the Bible, he might want to, you know, sit down, scratch his head, and wonder why did Jesus never try and convert any of them? He just told them, where I go, you cannot follow, and he told them, you are not my sheep. Why would he say that? It doesn't occur to people? Well, well, the, 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 the mark that they did not believe him, that was enough for, for him to make those professions because they did not hear his voice, because they did not accept his words. That was enough for him to tell us who they were. We should have believed him and understood that they were devils and understood from that point forward that those who rejected Christ were devils. And Christ in turn said to those people that there would be no more good fruit from that fig tree. Everybody from that point forward who professed to be a, 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 a Judean and wasn't a Christian and if they profess to be a Judean, that's basically a denial of being a Christian in the first century at the time of the apostles because those Judeans who accepted Christ lost their identity as Judeans. They became Christians. And that's what Paul taught. So, so that we, we made a lot of mistakes with the implementation of Christianity. Those mistakes are a matter of prophecy. Those mistakes were supposed to be made. Israel was, was ordained 2,500 years of punishment, as we read the prophets. And, and um, Christ came only about 700 years into that. So, so there was 1,800 years left at least, and now we're in a different pro, pro, prophetic period called the time of Jacob's trouble, as, as I understand it, where Esau rules over Jacob. So God foresaw the mistakes that Christians were going to make. There's no doubt. That's why he has those messages to the seven churches in the Revelation. Only two of those churches are not criticized. The other five are all criticized for one thing or another. 
So they all were foretold that they would make mistakes. Would you pick up with Luther? Moses was well aware of that when he said in Exodus 34 that God forgives sin and that no one is guiltless before him, which is to say that no one keeps his commandments, but he who sins God forgives. The part, but he who sins God forgives, is added by Luther. As David also testifies in Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. And in the same psalm, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to thee for forgiveness, which means that no saint keeps God's commandments, but if the saint fails to keep them, how will the ungodly, the unbelievers, the evil people keep them? Again we read in Psalm 143:2, O Lord, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for no man living is righteous before thee. That attests clearly enough that even the holy servants of God are not justified before him unless he sets aside his judgment and deals with them in his mercy. That is, they do not keep his commandments and stand in need of forgiveness of sins. Although the difference would be that the devils, the um, ungodly, the unbelievers, the Jews, they're not even making an attempt to keep any commandments. They recognize that they're not bound by those commandments, and they invent entire books on how to avoid those commandments. So they're not even making an attempt. Absolutely. And, and, And Luther takes it for granted that they should keep his commandments, but there's no, there should never be any expectation for anybody but that the, that the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, and we know who they are in Christian identity. Paul taught who they were. However, early Christians were still blind to that. Even though Paul taught it, they were still blind to it. They were supposed to be blind to it because that was a decree of God. That shows the power of, of the Word of God. That should make manifest the power of the Word of God, at least amongst all Christian identity adherents, that Paul actually taught these people that they were the literal descendants of the children of Israel, but that that teaching what was what well if it was purposely extinguished or, or or if it was hidden by god in the eyes of those people doesn't matter it did not take root in the early christian church it takes root today today we many of us at least can see it or there wouldn't be christian identity we Seeing Christian identity, certainly understand that the wicked, evil, the devils, that they're never expected to keep God's commandments. We should never expect them to. They can't. The law is not written in their hearts. The law is not for them in the first place. So so they're they're always going to be wicked, evil, and devils. And none of this, not, none of Luther's arguments about keeping it law and forgiveness of sins applies to Jews because they are not his sheep. They're not the people of God. You want to proceed? This calls for a man who will assist in this 
assist us in this, who bears our sin for us. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Indeed, that is truly to understand God's law and its observance. When we know, recognize, yes, and feel that we have it, but do not keep it and cannot keep it, that in view of this we are poor sinners and guilty before God, and that it is only out of pure grace and mercy that we receive forgiveness for such guilt and disobedience through the man on whom God has laid this sin. Of this we Christians speak, and this we teach, and of this the prophets and apostles speak to us and teach us. They are the ones who were and still are God's bride, are our God's bride and pure virgin, and yet they boast of no law or holiness as the Jews do in their synagogues. They rather wail over the law and cry for mercy and forgiveness of sin. The Jews, on the other hand, are as holy as the barefoot friars who possess so much excess holiness that they can use it to help others to get to heaven and still retain a rich and abundant supply to sell. And as a note... Um, Indulgence is is right. He's justly mocking the Catholic idea of indulgences. Which, at, at the time, they were way out of control in Luther's era. Well, well, that was one one of the primary complaints against the um, the Roman Catholics in the ninety five theses, what which Luton, Luther had published several years before this time. I, I think it was probably about twenty five or thirty years before this time. I forget the exact year. Wasn't it a was it? justly mocks the Catholic indulgences. Actually, the children of Israel who accept and turn to Christ, they are God's pure bride and virgin. Luther is saying that the apostles and the prophets are God's pure bride and virgin. That's not correct. In spite of the sins that the children of Israel have committed, which shall be forgiven them so long as they repent, Paul, speaking to the Christian assembly at Corinth, said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You know, in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells these people that they were the descendants of those who were in the Exodus with Moses. In the book of Romans, Paul quotes Hosea and um, the passage where those who were called not my people will be called my people. There they will be called the, the sons of the living God. Paul understood the fulfillment of all of these prophecies in Hosea. 
when Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was presenting that assembly as a chaste virgin to Christ, Paul understood the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 2 where Yahweh promised to betroth himself to Israel once again. Paul understood that. Paul understood that these people were dispersed of the ancient Israelites who were returning to Yahweh God through Christ. Luther didn't understand that. He basically says that the, um, the prophets and apostles, they are the ones who were and still are our God's bride and pure virgin. That's not what the apostle said. The apostle said quite the contrary, that the Christian church was God's bride and pure virgin. So Luther, I don't know where he gets some of his Christianity from. He sure as hell didn't get it from Paul. He probably got it from Lyra and Bergensis, if I had to guess. And it, I am. It, Luther does recognize that Christians should strive to keep the law of God even though there are times that we are going to fail. Luther recognizes that in this paragraph. For that, Luther can be respected because that is a true, um, what, what should be a true Christian doctrine. Paul teaches it, Romans chapter 3, there's no doubt. And as I was saying, if those two individuals, those converso Jews, if they had such an influence on Luther, we might infer that they had an influence on other people who were trained in the Catholic Church. Well, well certainly. Luther wasn't the direct pupil. He read their books. He had to read their books. He called them two excellent men. They died a hundred and two hundred years before Luther wrote this, or I'm... I'm giving rough estimations, but that's when they lived. They lived a long time before Luther. He must have, they must have published books that he read. That's how he knew them. He must have studied their works. He must have appreciated their works. But, but reading the fruits of Luther's um, Christian education, I, I, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I see a lot of problems with with comparing his understanding to what I see in Scripture. So, so yeah, this, to me, it's obvious that he was heavily influenced by men such as them, if not by those exact men. And why else would he mention them and say that they were two excellent men and, and talk them up, so to speak, in, in the, the opening paragraphs of this treatise? And they're both clearly converso Jews. So yes, they must have had a profound effect on Luther's view of Christianity, on his doctrines, on his beliefs, without a doubt. Okay, we should probably um, stop at this point. All right.
And you will be doing the um, Colin show at next week or the week after? I'll be doing um, part eight, I believe, of Martin Luther's Against the Jews and, their, and on the Jews and their lives next Saturday. And the following Saturday, I'll be returning from New York and, and I'll be having a call-in program, open phone lines on Friday and Saturday. That would be April 11th and 12th. Next week, on Friday, April 4th, it'll be Paul's Epistle to the Romans, Part 2. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening, everybody. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Good night.